You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. This week, we look at manufactured homes, how to reinforce them, protect them, and help residents who live in them. We'll also look at how a new trend in tipping might actually be hurting those who need those tips the most. And later, a look at the alcohol industry, which is facing a real threat from competition and low-to-no-alcohol trends. Let's begin, though, with a look at insurance, especially as we are seeing more severe weather, which is prompting more insurance companies to pull out of high-risk areas. Experts are warning of an insurance crisis unfolding as natural disasters get more expensive and insurance companies bail. Benjamin Keyes is with the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School of Business. We think of Florida, Arizona, Louisiana as being popular retirement destinations, and those destinations just got a bit costlier to move to because of rising insurance costs. Well, now is probably a good time for property owners to check those insurance policies and buckle up for dramatically higher costs. You can blame climate, macroeconomic pressures, political factors that have battered the insurance industry in recent years. Let's talk about it now. Bloomberg Opinion columnist David Fickling joins me. David covers energy and commodities. David, tell us what we might find as we do start to review our insurance policies. Yeah, well, it's it's looking a pretty uh, rough year for uh, for anyone who's got an insurance policy. Um, Beasley uh, PLC, one um, you know, one of the UK based insurers, but have a lot of coverage in the US. They said recently that uh, property owners in the US um, are already seeing annual rate increases, um, averaging seventeen percent. Um, so you know, in a, a year when we're already seeing pretty high. Um, inflationary costs, uh, insurance is is going up faster than than the fastest rate of inflation, and and if anything, that maybe understates um, some of what we've got coming down the pipe, um, because that's that's looking at the um, looking at the rate increases for for everybody, and of course the rate increases will be most severe for those who've experienced natural disasters, and um, some of that um, some of what we're seeing there is is extremely severe, and, and I think particularly. Um, if you look at what's being paid by by reinsurers, um, the, um, the the cost of um, to, to renew policies for reinsurers is fifty percent in um, in the US and and in in Australia. If you've been uh, exposed to disasters, it's going up seventy five percent. So there's some really extraordinary increases that we're seeing at the moment. Even uh, insurers who hadn't had catastrophic disasters were having to pay twenty percent to fifty percent more than a year ago, um, and that cost. Which is, you know, remember you, the structure of insurance. You have, uh, you take out a policy with your insurer, and then your insurer takes out a policy with a reinsurer to cover the really big costs from from the big natural disasters that um, that they struggle to cover on their own. Um, the the pricing that they are paying to reinsurers gets, you know, gets knocked on down um, down the track. If they're having to pay a lot extra to reinsurers, they're having to get a lot, lot extra on your premiums, or alternatively, they're having to exclude things um, that previously they didn't exclude. Um, and, and of course, we're also seeing, as a result of this, a lot of people who just simply can't really afford insurance anymore. So is this because of the natural disasters that we've seen of late? I'm going to reach for a classic insurance disaster industry cliche and say it is a perfect storm. Oh, goodness. <laughs> um, but it, it, there is a combination of several factors that are happening at the same time. There, um, 
actually the the natural disasters that we've seen recently um they're because of climate change um and also generally just because um insurance losses always rise because they rise with income they rise with population growth uh they rise with um people putting more of their their money into the capital stock of their buildings and things like that um Insurance costs always rise, but we've seen, you know, we've seen a run of record years in recent years. The, the most recent big disaster, obviously, in the in the US, Hurricane Adali, doesn't seem to have been actually a particularly um, dr- dramatic one. Uh, I think the um, the modelling now is suggesting it's sort of low single digits of billions. Sounds like a lot of money, but for the insurance industry, that's pretty um, uh, that's that's pretty small potatoes. That in itself is not that much to worry about. Um, so um, so yes, but but I think. The other factor to consider is a lot of the uh, the sort of macroeconomic factors that come in here. For most of the period that we've been uh, you know, growing more concerned and seeing some of these bigger impacts from climate change, it's been over the past 15 years when interest rates have been very low uh, and when inflation has been very low. Um, and the one thing that insurers and reinsurers worry about more than climate change and natural disasters is inflation. Um, the reason for that, if you think about the model, um, when you pay your insurance premiums, um, the insurer does not expect to pay out your losses if something happens to your house uh, from the money that you pay them. They, the, the, the way the model works is they take your premiums and they invest it and they can only, uh, you know, they can only cover your losses based on the investment returns. Uh, and what they're investing in because they're conservative, um, conservative investors is bonds. Um, and of course, so the bond bull market of the past 15 years has been, you know, was immensely good for the insurance industry. And that, um, although consumers probably didn't feel that way, uh, that meant that insurers were pretty lenient over the past sort of 10, 15 years to, uh, you know, to householders, to people with insured property. Um, this has now changed. Uh, the bond bull market is over. You've got this, um, you've got high rates of inflation, which are meaning on their investment portfolios. A lot of them are making losses. They're certainly not making good, um, you know, good returns on those portfolios to to cover the losses that they have to pay out. Um, and another factor that we have, of course, is that um, the the period of very low interest rates has um, has has come to an end, mm-hmm. and that means that there was uh, over the last fifteen years there were there were a lot of new different types of investors that were getting into the insurance industry. Uh, in their search for different uh, for for better yield, so you you would have um, you know hedge funds would uh, you know there were a lot of um, you know bond investors, catastrophe bonds, sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, all sorts of new investors were coming in, and that was providing capital to the insurance industry, and that allowed them to to push down or compete down the the premiums that we were paying. Um, interest rates have gone up; it's a lot easier for um, for those investors to find yield elsewhere, so they're not going to the insurance industry. So again, that has um, that has been this big macroeconomic factor as we've moved from a, a low low rate, low inflation environment to a high rate, high inflation environment. Some of those macro factors that made insurance more affordable for the past 15 years have, de- have disappeared. Uh, as a result, um, what insurers are having to do is pass the costs back on to, to householders. We are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist David Fickling about how severe weather is a perfect storm for the insurance industry. David, have we seen this before? Um, well, the inflationary situation, uh, I, I mean, we're, we're, this is sounding a slightly long in the tooth reference, but there was, uh, 
you know, during the, the last period of high inflation that you saw in the sort of early to mid 80s, mm -hmm. um, there was a, there was a real significant crisis uh, for the insurance industry connected to that because it did a lot of damage to their investment for portfolios. Mm -hmm. um, uh, at that point, it was, um, it, you know, it was also accentuated by some of the, uh, you know, quite big, unusual losses that came in around about the 80s. Of course, we had um, uh, we had the period of things like asbestosis. Um, uh, you know, a, a lot of insurers found that they uh, they had cover um, for asbestos damage, um, but they weren't. They you know they they hadn't really modelled those risks because the you know the the problems with asbestos weren't known until then. A lot of money was paid out. There were a lot of big disasters in the late eighties, sort of oil tanker disasters. The um, you know the uh, the Exxon uh, Valdez, the Torrey Canyon, I think, um, and most famously. Um, what uh you know what i ended up resulting from that sort of series of of uh of link disasters that, that you know the lloyds of london the um you know the original sort of sh uh, shipping insurance market that's been uh been running from 300 years um suffered a, an, an absolute crisis that caused a, a lot of the the syndicates there at lloyds to, to lose a great deal of money um so the insurance industry has been through this sort of thing before and it's and it's a reason why they're very very wary of uh, of inflation because of uh, what it's done to them in the past. Now, I think what we're going to see, I mean, uh, insurers and reinsurers are very circumspect about their Their job is managing future risks uh, and they're very good at it. Uh, and of course, the, the way they do it is something that we um, that we tend to forget and don't like very much, which is that they just stop insuring risks. They either price risks so high that we can't afford them, or they just withdraw coverage altogether from um, from areas. And I think we tend to think, you, I mean, you, you'd often have heard, I think, over the past 10 years, people talking about uh, climate and insurance saying, well, we have, you know, the insurance industry is a great model for sort of, uh, you know, for pricing uh, risks, and, and that will sort of take away the risk of climate change. Well, it doesn't it doesn't take away the risk, it moves the risk around. Mm. Uh, and the insurance industry wants to be always making a profit. Uh, and if those risks get so high that it's not making a profit, then the insurance industry will withdraw. If you look at Florida, for instance, is the classic example, although if you look at the insurance market there, uh, it is completely broken. Less than one in five Floridians have flood protection in their insurance policies. Bear in mind, an, another effect that we have from inflation is that the cost of rebuilding is going up very dramatically. Um, so, so even if you thought you had enough money to rebuild your house five years ago, uh, you probably don't have enough money to rebuild your house now. Um, so all of those factors mean that, that um, people who previously thought they were sort of under the, the protective umbrella of insurance uh, really are finding the umbrella rather threadbare at this point. Bloomberg Opinion columnist David Fickling. Now coming up, we're going to continue this conversation from a different point of view. What have we learned about, say, manufactured housing in severe weather and what needs to be done for those residents? That's just ahead. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. We are talking about the aftermath of severe weather and the impact on manufactured homes. Before Hurricane Adalia slammed into Florida, the mayor of Tampa, Jane Castor, was warning residents in low-lying neighborhoods and in mobile homes 
to get out. Understand that Mother Nature wins every time. So if you have the opportunity to evacuate and you can, you should, please please do. After Hurricane Adalia, some of the most enduring images are of mobile and manufactured homes battered and flood damaged. So what can be done to protect these manufactured homes and why do they even need protecting? Let's bring in Bloomberg Opinion columnist Jonathan Levin, who covers finance, markets and M&A. Jonathan, manufactured and mobile homes absolutely are affordable homes, but just bring us up to speed how many people live in these homes. Let's start there. Yeah, millions and millions, and it's even a greater share of uh, of Floridians. So you know we're talking uh, six six seven percent of of occupied housing stock here in the in the Sunshine State, and uh, you know it's important to say that it's a really really important source of housing uh, here in the Sunshine State and across the uh, the Sun Belt, uh, where affordability has become more and more of a challenge in recent years. You say lawmakers should improve the planning and the oversight of these mobile home parks. Like what? What is lacking? Yeah, so a a couple of things. So, A, uh, you know, um, manufactured housing uh, tends to be subject to a lot of of nimbyism. It's this this sort of uh, entrenched nimbyism in in a lot of municipal codes. And because of that, manufactured housing uh, tends to end up in places like unincorporated parts of the of various counties, uh, right? So these also, um, not so coincidentally, can often be some of the most vulnerable uh, parts of the county due to climate change. So I I think the very first thing uh, that that lawmakers and other leaders in our communities need need to consider is that manufactured housing needs to be a part of the plan from the beginning. It can't just be this this afterthought, uh, and and it can't uh, it just be you know cast off to the these sort of no man's lands because um, like wealthier communities uh, don't want to don't want to look at it. That's not a, a sustainable uh, and it's not a safe uh, uh, solution for this kind of housing. The, the key point here is some of these structures are actually very, very good. Uh, if, if you if you look at the kind of uh, manufactured housing uh, that has has come out since uh, 1994, since a, a critical revision in the way the uh, federal regulations work, these kinds of structures are actually uh, pretty good, and they're just as good as anything else uh, when it comes to flood specifically. Again, the issue is when, uh, you know, community biases come into play and these sorts of housing get cast off into the middle of, of nowhere, then you have these communities, which which tend to skew a little bit lower income and are inherently vulnerable because of that. You have them placed in some of the most vulnerable jurisdictions uh, in uh, various counties and states. The conventional wisdom is also that they that it's not safe. You were just ta- addressing that that that's sort of an um, overgeneralization that maybe tornadoes are not going to look for the trailer park and and target it, which is an, an ongoing joke. I'm from South Carolina, so I remember those jokes a lot. Where we had you know areas where folks were living in mobile homes or manufactured housing, and those seemed to be the ones that were the most vulnerable. Your point being. It's not the trailer, it's not the house, it's not the manufactured housing that's vulnerable, it's the location. 
Yeah, there, there, there's that and there's a couple of other things. So, so another thing that I talk about in my, my recent piece is sort of aligning economic incentives. A key, a key problem with manufactured housing is that oftentimes, while residents will own the structure, they will not own the land, right? They're oftentimes found in these parks and uh, residents are essentially renters there. Uh, so if you do have an unscrupulous landlord uh, who just wants to pinch pennies and maximize profits and doesn't invest uh, in the, the right sort of uh, infrastructure and storm preparedness, that can also be uh, a, a problem area. So, uh, you know, as part of the solutions that I, I uh, sort of uh, propose and review in my piece, I, I suggest that there really also needs to be increased oversight of, of landlords. You know, this, this has been a popular uh, investment for uh, private equity. It's a private. It's a popular investment for REITs, and I'm not saying that uh, all or even most of them are are bad actors. But in an environment where the economic incentives aren't necessarily uh, aligned all, all the time, you do need government to come in and make sure that everybody is acting properly. And we are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Jonathan Levin about the role of manufactured homes in the U.S. and why they need protecting. You mentioned community plan planning uh, and how it needs to document and incorporate manufactured home communities, giving them more of a footprint, more stability within those um, planned communities. Does, is that going to get any traction? I mean, like you say, there's this sort of um, attitude about mobile homes that isn't always very flattering. I think, you know, one key solution, one key longer term solution to all of this is potentially uh, to give um, manufacturer housing residents more self-determination. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, I, I'm, I make the point that there's this problem of, of aligning the economic incentives so that people want to invest in re resilience. And one way to do that is to give them ownership of that, that plot of land. So a lot of times what happens and what can be, be a dangerous situation is a park gets sold and uh, somebody comes in and they, they want to start pinching pennies. What if, you, you know, when parks get sold, the government requires uh, the seller to, cons to consider an offer from the community. What if the community could, could come in and, uh, it, you know, pool their money and make an offer themselves? Then you have better alignment of economic incentives. You have a group of people who want to invest in the resilience of their terrain. Uh, and it, it, there's, uh, there's some really good research that suggests that that can be a good long-term solution. Is there a need for government then to intervene here? Correct. Yeah. So, so some some of the best laws uh, that have been going on the books recently uh, do a couple of things. So they will say that when uh, a piece of property is going up for sale, uh, residents should be alerted in advance. Right. You, you know, you can't give somebody 48 hours uh, to bring the community together and, and make an offer. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the government uh, and authorities in general should also be given advance notice. Uh, and it's important to have some sort of uh, requirement that uh, that fair consideration is actually given to the community's offer. So one uh, form that that can take, again, is a right of a right of first refusal. You also mentioned NIMBYism a couple of times earlier in this interview perhaps part of the solution is the rest of us changing our attitudes? 
Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, so manufactured housing, it's important to, to point out at the end here, it's a really, really broad category. And if, if you look at some of these structures, you wouldn't know that they are that they are manufactured housing. These are not, uh, you know, trailer parks, classically, classically speaking. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, you know, manufactured housing is going to be an important part of our affordable housing challenges uh, here in the United States. Uh, and it's it's important to embrace it as as such and uh, and not bring so many biases to the debate to start with. Jonathan Levin is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist who covers finance, markets, and M&A. And don't forget, we are available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. The alcohol industry has been thriving despite a streak of threats, the legalization of marijuana, a trade war with China that has hampered U.S. exports, the rise of the sober curious movement, and now a new risk one few investors or companies are publicly acknowledging could pressure sales, and that is weight loss drugs. Lisa Jarvis is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. She covers biotech, healthcare, and the pharmaceutical industry, and she joins us now. Lisa, we know these weight loss drugs are reshaping the weight loss market. How is there a threat now or an impact to the market for alcoholic beverages? It's this unexpected side effect of these drugs, which is that people just don't really have the desire to drink. Not all people, but a a healthy chunk of them. Uh, One survey said that about 62% of people who take these drugs drink less alcohol. I think two things are going on. You know, one is that um, they just make alcohol less appealing or any addictive substances, including food, less appealing. Um, And then two, I think you feel full faster. So even if you kind of force yourself to drink, you can't have more than one drink before it is really unpleasant for you. So food, nicotine, alcohol, opioids, those sort of addictive substances. And and you were the one who said that food can be an addictive substance. And, And as a layman, I would say, yeah, it's probably true. It dampens the rewards. It goes up into your brain and it says this isn't pleasant for you. Is that how it works? That's right. It's dampening the kind of reward circuitry in our brains um, that um, tells us to keep going. And, and, you know, that kind of hit you get when you eat something sugary or, you know, you have a glass of alcohol um, or I suppose, smoke a cigarette. Um, and so it's it's affecting that particular circuitry in the brain. And they think that's why it is that we're seeing the side effect um, that, you know, I would say for some people, that's a happy side effect. I've talked to a lot of people now who are taking these drugs and some of them thought that one an added bonus of going on them was the fact that it could help them kind of get their drinking a little more in check, especially coming off of the pandemic. I wonder if these drugs, this the the Ozempic and these weight loss drugs, could be used then for addicts, like maybe marketed to physicians or to clinics for addicts who maybe really are looking for a way out and for help. Yeah, I mean, there definitely are studies going on. There's some researchers at the University of North Carolina that are looking at this. They're they're conducting clinical studies to sort of say, okay, you know here's how well they work for different substances for people who have substance use disorder. Um, And I think that kind of paves the way. We have good data in a different various animal models. I think rats, 
uh, mice, monkeys. Monkeys are a lot like humans. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and then we've got just at this point, scads of anecdotal data. Um, like I said, I've talked to a lot of people who take these drugs. You know, I'm not the only one who's written about this. I think other reporters have caught on to this trend that, um, you know, you can find it on TikTok too, that people are drinking a lot less. And so now what we need is just studies to understand who benefits from that. Because like I said, it's not everyone. And then how well it works. You know, if you're someone who's you know, maybe just a moderate drinker that wants to pair back versus someone who has an actual substance use disorder. And we are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Lisa Jarvis about how a weight loss drug might actually impact the alcohol industry. A side effect, Lisa, that nobody really saw coming. Um, how unusual is it to have a drug that is designed for one use, like this was diabetes, for example, and then there's another use discovered, in this case, weight loss, and now there's this third side effect? Is that the, the appropriate term, where they realize that it dampens the rewards for addictive substances? This is sort of a triple threat, like in one injection. How did they figure this out? Right. I mean, it is unusual. We've, we certainly have examples of other drugs that started out being studied for one thing and ended up being much more useful for something else. And that's actually usually how it works. Maybe it didn't work in heart disease, but it turns out to work um, in erectile dysfunction. That's what happened with <laughs> with Viagra, for example. But it's not it's not typical. <laughs> and it's not typical that it would work so well in all of them. You know, um, so like you said, we started with diabetes. They saw that people were also losing more weight than other diabetes drugs induce. Um, and now we're seeing this other side effect. And, you know, I think there's just a lot of ripple effects across many industries of these drugs. It's very unexpected. Um, and so, you know, I think as we learn more about the receptors that these drugs are hitting, which ones work better when it comes to substances, we'll start to sort out what's going on in our brains and how to use them best. No, you and I have talked before about how women are drinking unhealthy amounts of alcohol of late. And now we're learning these drugs might be able to curb some of those cravings. Is, is there a market there or is there a risk of over prescribing these drugs? Mm. You know, I, I think at this point right now, they can't really be overprescribed simply because we don't have enough supply. Uh -huh. You know, I think we'll see what happens in a few years. The question I think that um, scientists are interested in and the companies are interested in is, is whether there's a way that these drugs can be used to kind of be a reset. So if you stop taking them, do you stop? You know, we know that weight tends to come back, but, you know, does that piece of your brain that tells you like you don't need that second glass of wine or you didn't need it in the first place is that kind of reset so that's still something tbd but um you know hopefully hopefully we figure that out in the coming years as more people are taking these drugs and more studies happen i know it is to be decided or to be determined but i have like questions to build upon that because those would be the questions that i would have if my doctor were to prescribe this for me there's an assumption that if you are prescribed this drug you will take it regularly and you will continue to take it and you won't accidentally miss a dose and then you might stay on the drug for long term so number one what happens if you do accidentally miss a dose and number two what would the long-term side effects be as you stay on it and number three what happens when you're not on it anymore, when you discontinue use? Yeah, well, I, I would just 
you know, I think it's good for people to remember that for diabetes, um, Ozempic has been approved since 2017. So we have a lot of data on that. And there's um, other classes, other kinds of GLP drugs that don't induce the same kind of weight loss that we're seeing with Ozempic and Wigovi and Mujaro, the other drug that's around, um, that have been around for even longer. So, so we have some reassuring data there that like you can take these for a long time and it's probably safe. Um, when it comes to kind of what happens when you go off the drugs. It's a, it's an open question, you know, and I and I do think that companies are interested in not just studying what happens, how, how you might, could you change the dosing, like have it be less frequent, but also inventing other drugs that maybe are longer lasting or can help with maintenance versus, um, oh. you know, continuing the weight loss. So what's the future then of these weight loss slash diabetes slash less alcohol or less addictive type drugs? Like, what's the future of these drugs? Where is this going? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to watch because it's changing so fast. Every week, I feel like we're learning something new about right. them. But there are a number of other drugs that are in the pipeline, some that have higher levels of weight loss, some that hit on these receptors plus some other receptors. And I think we're starting to understand kind of the relationship between um, all of those to think about, you know, could you take a drug that you only take once every three months or once every six months? Could you take, there's pills that are coming. So, which I, I think also could change the landscape because not everybody wants to inject something once, uh, right. you know, a week. Um, so I, I think to me, the really big question and kind of getting back to the alcohol thing is, you know, what are the ripple effects on all the other industries that could be affected, you know, that we just haven't quite wrapped our heads around? People will eat less, people might drink less, you know, what are the things we haven't even imagined yet that this shift in our behavior could could induce, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty wild. <laughs> right. Could it impact, say, the industry of, of gyms, going to the gym, hiring a personal trainer? Um, could it right. impact all of that one way or another? Yeah. And we're already seeing it with some of the diet, you know, kind of foods and drinks like shakes and things like that. Mm -hmm. That uh, I think there's some data showing that already people are taking, you know, drinking less of those. So it, it, it to, TBD, but there's a lot of different things that are unknown and I'm excited to watch what happens. Lisa Jarvis is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering biotech, healthcare, and the pharmaceutical industry. Now, Bloomberg Opinion continues with a look at tipping. There's a new trend that could complicate matters for people who actually rely on those tips. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. Have you noticed a new trend? You're headed out for coffee or a quick bite, and the establishment encourages you to add a tip to your bill, even if it's a self-serve place. Let's talk about what's happening. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Bobby Ghost joins us now. What's going on? Everybody wants a little extra. Well, you've already hinted at it at your introduction. It's this new trend or accelerating trend, if you like, where we as customers are being prompted to give a tip at places where we previously never thought that was necessary. Coffee shops, cinema theaters, even car washes. More generally, the notion is that you give a tip where you can see and feel a service being rendered. Where'd this come from? 
Well, it it comes from a couple of things. One is, of course, that these these new machines at the till um, make it possible. Um, some of it is attributable to what happened during the pandemic when Americans, people around the world, felt in a much more generous mood towards people who were uh, taking the trouble, taking the risk of going to work despite the incredible dangers. Um, some of that has just stayed on. The other really interesting contributor to this is unemployment levels in the U.S. are so low mm-hmm. um, that many establishments, um, grocery stores, uh, uh, for example, are struggling to find staff. And then the, the normal course of events when you're short of staff and when you're worried about losing staff to your competitors is you raise their salaries. Well, this is one way companies are raising income, mm-hmm. but passing on the on the responsibility for that directly to uh, their customer. So how could this new trend hurt those who need these tips the most? Well, what's happening is it's a bit of a bank shot. People are very disgruntled at having to leave tips in so many different and new places Mm -hmm. that they're becoming a little more stingy in the places where traditionally they were not, where they were quite happy to leave tips, in restaurants. In poll after poll after poll, we're seeing that Americans are now less likely to leave a tip at at a restaurant. And this is a serious problem because in the restaurant industry, most of the people to whom you leave tips, busboys, servers, barmen, um, do not get paid a fair minimum wage. Their employers expect the gap between what they're being paid and uh, a livable wage to be filled by customers. And if if you are sort of punishing the waiters for let's say Starbucks's fault of, of charging you tips where you didn't previously give, that's unfair to the waiters. And, and it's, not, it's more than a question of being fair or unfair. It's, it's, it's a crisis for the restaurant industry. They too are struggling to find people and hold on to people. And if we pay less in tips or if we don't tip at all, uh, that makes the restaurant industry the sort of place where nobody wants to work. And, and in, an, in an employment market as it is today, there are plenty of other op- uh, options. And so people don't want to work in restaurants anymore. Do you think tip creep is here to stay? Um, I, as a restaurant goer, I hope not. But there's a bigger problem, which is that the restaurant industry and its wage structure is profoundly um, unfair. I think it's time for the restaurant industry to pay uh, its employees a fair wage, a, a, a minimum wage to start with. Uh, and then if they are struggling to find uh, staff, they should do what other industries do, which is pay better, give better bre- benefits. They'll have to pass the costs on to me as a customer, but I'm willing to pay that extra price. Um, and if it leads to a situation where at the end of the day, I don't feel obliged to pay a huge tip just to make my server, you know, give my server a chance to have a fair wage. That's an acceptable situation for me. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Bobby Goshen. That does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. We are produced by Eric Molo, and you can find all of these columns on the Bloomberg Terminal, and we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines coming up. I'm Amy Morris, and this is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.